1: they arrive to view the marvels of the greatest exposition in history. An outstanding landmark is the theme center, while the four freedoms speech, press, assembly, and religion overlook Constitution Mall. Thirty feet high, they symbolize the four rights of free Americans guaranteed by the Constitution. The 700 foot trilon rises above all else. And the circling helicline that leads into the Perisphere's exhibit, Democracy, is a pathway to the future. Thousands are treading to get a fascinating preview of things to come.
0: And now, ladies and gentlemen, Episode 7 I Have Seen the Future. I Have Seen the Future chapter 28 andy gripped lucy's hand as they trailed the ford people outside lucy was shaken at first breathing rapidly until they neared the flip car on the grass outside the main building had she or anyone seen the wisp of orange monkeys fade into the midday sky he's dead shouted one of the men looking inside the car my god what caused him to do that Andy did not answer as a black police sedan moved quickly across the bridge of wings and swung kitty-corner to the grass. Three blue-uniformed policemen followed a short pudgy man with a dog face and a reddish-brown mustache. He smoked a stubby cigar and had a gritty voice.
1: What the hell
0: is going on here? He shouted and folded his arms in front of the car. One of our men drove recklessly and over the ramp answered a lean man with a long neck and dirty blonde hair. He's dead, Sergeant. It's Lieutenant McPhail. Yes, sir. Jesus um, some cripes. You guys told me it was impossible to get over the damn ramps. What, normal speeds? Normal, abnormal, we have a flipped car over here and a dead driver. He turned as a wide, white ambulance zoomed over the bridge. Is anyone else hurt? McPhail removed his hat and wiped his forehead in wavy red hair. And Donovan, call the morgue. Lou, don't you want to check with Wayland and the fair and see how they want to handle it? Get the goddamn coroner over here and send someone else inside and talk to Ford about removing the vehicle. He took out a pack of Camel cigarettes from his shirt pocket and struck a match. Okay, okay, we need witnesses here. Andy stepped forward with Lucy "'Sir, we were in the car ahead of the yellow car.' "'And who the hell are you?' he asked, waving a young officer with a notepad up front. "'Andy Reese. "'Oh, you're not from New York. "'Probably from East Moose-dropping Alaska.' Well, we're from Iowa, Lou,' said Lucy, "'and that man in the yellow car just went crazy. "'I'm Lieutenant McPhail. "'It was as if he were trying to force us off the ramp.' "'That right, kid?' he asked Andy. "'That's what happened.' "'Well, where's the driver of your car?' asked McPhail as he spun around. Well, I was driving,' said the teary-eyed, dark-haired driver. "'I don't know what happened to Eddie. "'He's driven here up at the fair since we opened in April.' "'Eddie what?' asked McPhail. "'I don't know.' "'He doesn't know, Phil!' he called the other cop at the car window. "'I have his name Lou Fontaine, Eddie Fontaine from Flatbush.' No kidding, I didn't know him. McPhail took a drag on the cigarette and then tossed it on the pavement. Why would Fontaine go nuts? Check and see if he was drinking, Phil. Andy moved closer. I was wondering if we could have a few words in private with you. McPhail's blue eyes tightened as if he had just ate a rancid hot dog. What the hell? It's important. Ah, oh, Jesus them cripes, everything's important. McPhail led him and Lucy across the grass directly in back of the car. The policeman and the Ford workers dragged Eddie Fontaine's soaked body through the driver's side window. Okay, big boy, what's your problem? This is Lucy Appel. You bragging? Complaining? He laughed and lit another cigarette. What's this all about? I believe Mr. Davenport called you about the agents following Miss Appel and Professor Geiger, who was a prominent guest here, plus the three other men. He exhaled a prodigious amount of smoke. What the hell am I supposed to do about it, Reese? Be your personal bodyguard? Are you volunteering? Asked Lucy. He pointed at her and spoke with the cigarette in the corner of his mouth. I can't spend my time solving crimes that haven't been committed yet. If somebody is following you, you just tell them to scram. Andy took a step toward McPhail and straddled the pavement. Is that what you want me to tell? Davenport and Wayland? I work for the city of New York, Rube. He said, flashing his gold badge on his chest. Oh, yeah? You get a promotion from picking up the garbage, Lou? His rusty mustache twitched. You watch your mouth, Dandy Andy. You can't take care of yourself. That's not my problem. McPhail waddled back to the car as Miss Haverhill and the appels came running out the aluminum frame doors. Lucy, are you all right? We're all right, Mom. But the man in the yellow car is dead. John grabbed Andy's arm as McPhail barked out more orders. Andy, did I hear that yellow car went flying off the ramp? The man went insane and nobody knows why. Andy, tell him about the men who were chasing us. John spun back to Andy and Andy shook his head. Three guys in fair uniforms. They just disappeared. Miss Haverhill, clipboard to her chest, scurried up to them. I am so very sorry. If anything had happened to you, I couldn't forgive myself. We just mentioned the agents to that MacPhail character, and he told us to handle it. I think he snubbed the fare is what he did, said Lucy, especially after Andy told him Mr. Davenport would help us. We have people spying on us, and the police don't care. Andy smiled at her forthrightness. Miss Haverhill's eyes were still wide open. I will contact Mr. Davenport at once. Excuse me? Certainly, said Lucy with a smug grin. Well said, kimo I don't like MacPhail. He doesn't listen. John stepped around Andy and hugged Lucy. That's my daughter. Mrs. Appel tapped her shoulder. As long as you say it well and with good manners, then people will listen. "'Which is more than I can say for Bulldog MacPhail," said Andy to John. "'As John half-grinned, a series of pops, as if somebody were firing a gun or shooting off fireworks, "'echoed from across the highway near the electric pavilions. "'Andy rounded the yellow car and stood on the grass with his hands on his hips. "'His heart beat quickly. "'What was the real cause of the fair's electrical problems?' Both he and Lucy as well as Geiger could have their lives in danger if the monkeys were on the loose. Andy closed his eyes and was silent as he leaned back in the train seat. His stomach wrenched as he visualized the monkeys rising from the yellow car and into the wind. As the train passed the waterfall at the consolidated Edison façade, several men in maintenance trucks backed through the plaza of light and up to the General Electric building. A smoldering, burnt-out odor spread through the air. He scanned every worker around the buildings. The train engine whined at the bulbous, spider-like U.S. steel building and proceeded under the DuPont building's antenna tower. Lucy leaned over. At least the agents are gone. He nodded and pressed his lips before he spoke. I still want to talk to Geiger if he is at the college, or... Maybe you can call from the Kodak building. She moved her hand around his hand. Geiger still isn't safe, Lucy. He needs to stay away from the fair. I'm beginning to think you're right. Beyond the rounded Schaefer Center at the end of the Avenue of Labor, a rectangular building with a white surface merged into a geometrically curved rear structure marked Kodak. An aquiline canopy lined the lower area and a totem pole of huge photos towered in front of the pavilion. A green-framed turnstile of wall-sized photos turned clockwise and advertised the cavalcade of color. Several men in orange and blue fair uniforms stood rigidly like military men under the canopy and the window span. Davenport paced in front of the men and nervously adjusted his bow tie when he saw the train approach. He hurried up to Miss Haverhill and the appels in the front car. Miss Haverhill pointed back to Andy and Lucy, "'Davenport nodded, then he and the men marched along the cars. "'Miss LaPelle, I want to apologize on behalf of the fair "'for that incident at the Ford building. "'My God, I hope you two were not injured.' "'Davenport helped Lucy from the car. "'We're all fine, Mr. Davenport, "'except for that poor man driving the yellow car. "'And there is no reasonable explanation.' "'He turned to Andy. "'And you, Mr. Reese, are you all right?' "'I'm fine, but I have other concerns.' Yes, I received your reports of the agents following Miss Appel. I'm working at this very time with the mayor's office to get New York City officers to accompany you around the fair. Well, we were just dismissed by Lieutenant MacPhail. Davenport straightened up. That is propitious information. Thank you. In the meantime, Mr. Wallace and Mr. Soriano will be with you until we get the officers here. The two men tipped their hats to Indy and Andy faced Davenport. Lucy has written Professor Geiger, and that may be at the heart of this. I would like to speak with the professor before Lucy's reading of her essay tomorrow. I do not wish Professor Geiger to be at risk. Yes, that is a premier idea. I will also speak with the mayor's office about having Professor Geiger protected. Miss Haverhill can coordinate the contact with the professor. Thank you because before those agents are caught and questioned, we're not safe. I will relay that to the mayor's office, I assure you, he motioned them forward. Now, I hope we can resume your tour of the fair without further incident, and I do apologize, please, if you will. Andy and Lucy trailed behind Davenport and over to the appels and Miss Haverhill, waiting in front of the Kodak window span. He asked Davenport if he could speak to him privately. The appels were brought inside by the fair personnel, and Andy walked slowly with Davenport toward the huge photo display outside. Mr. Davenport, I'm not attempting to be rude or unappreciative of your hospitality here. I know that, Mr. Reese. I've spoken with Professor Geiger. These men, as I said, cornered Lucy Appell in Iowa and then proceeded to become violent with her father. Oh, good God, I didn't know that. I got myself in the middle of it, and the two men left Hancock, and now they're here at the fair. I assure you, especially with how we're promoting Miss Appel's essay, that the mayor's office will definitely get a police presence here as soon as possible. He removed an orange and blue card from his coat pocket. This is my private number at home and here at the fair. I can be contacted at any time. I want to assure you I take this situation very seriously. Andy looked down the avenue of labor back to the Edison area. Did I hear that another transformer blew? Davenport moved his brows up and down. I'm not sure why we've had all these persistent electrical problems, but everything is up and running at this time. Andy shook Davenport's hand. Thank you for your concern, Mr. Reese, and I assure you, Miss Appel and Professor Geiger will be safe. Good day, Mr. Reese as Davenport trotted over to one of the fair vehicles. Andy entered the building and moved up to John, fedora in his left hand, and tracing his finger around the huge camera housing as he studied the designation above. Supermatic Shutter. Mrs. Appel held her camera at the outside doors. John, they have places out back where you can have your picture taken. We're coming, Mavis, he turned to Andy. Right, Andy? Andy smiled. Right, John. They exited the rear doors to a stone-tiled amphitheater with several small stage areas with backgrounds depicting the fair. Mrs. Appel carefully instructed everyone to step up to a smaller version of the photo collage from out in front. Andy forced a smile, but his gaze was directed past the high radio antenna and toward the plaza of light, where the transformer had blown out. Mrs. Appel snapped the individual photos at the little Trilon and Perisphere with the blue background. Lucy insisted that her mother take several pictures of her and Andy, but Andy, although he blurted out the usual cheddar cheese, feared for Geiger's life and was unsure if the professor was still at the college. The agents lurked, just like the monkeys, and could be ready to strike. Word came down from Davenport that he had spoken directly to Professor Geiger and informed him that Lucy and Andy would call his office. He instructed Miss Haverhill to send them to the AT&T building, where they could telephone the professor directly. The fair workers escorted them down the Avenue of Patriots to the AT&T building. They crossed under an entrance overshadowed by a rendition of a telephone worker atop a telephone pole. A wide bell, molded with a switchboard operator of the bell system, was attached above the windows adjacent to the doors. As Davenport's men remained at a distance, Andy sat with Lucy at a table with a half a dozen black telephones. Operators connected Andy to Amesbury Union College. He held the telephone receiver and waited as the line rang. An older man's squeaky voice said Geiger was in the building and awaiting his call. How many pictures has your mother taken, Lucy? She's going to run out of film. Oh, I've lost track when we were at that Kodak picture stop, and I sat on the little perisphere, and Dad pretended he was hanging from the trylon. That will be a funny picture. Your dad is having a good time.
1: Yes, who is this?
0: Andy's heart thumped. Professor Geiger.
1: Yes, this is Geiger.
0: Professor, this is Andy Reese. You're back from Southern California.
1: You are a persistent man here, Henry Davenport suggested I talk to you. I assure you, I am a busy man right now. Very bizarre things are happening. And yes, I have returned from California because I have no answers.
0: I'm here with Lucy Appel. Professor, your life is in danger, said Andy, looking up at Lucy.
1: (laughs) You're telling me something I don't already know.
0: Perhaps it would be best not to return to the fair. For now, that is.
1: I know Hitler and the Nazis have no presence at the fair yet. Are there Nazis after me? No. That's a young man, so definitive. You are so sure of yourself. I will continue to be evasive, but I tell you that I will be there for Miss Pell's essay reading. I know that Ed Davenport is contacting the mayor himself to get police protection if necessary. I am sorry if Miss Pell's correspondence with me has caused trouble.
0: Professor, please, there's more to this than Nazis and agents. Lucy creased your brow.
1: I do not understand,
0: replied Geiger. Are you familiar with the Einstein field equations mentioned in his general theory of relativity?
1: Well, of course. What the hell are you talking about?
0: Space-time, professor. A tensor equation begins with the curvature, the metric tensor of space-time. If carried beyond the fourth dimension to the upper dimensions, wouldn't you say it would be possible to create a tunnel back through space-time?
1: of these physics theories. Are you privy to my work in California or are you trying to ingratiate yourself with me to gain a teaching position?
0: No, sir. I'm trying to suggest that there are many things possible and that with those possibilities is reality.
1: Oh, that is why I write novels. That is why I was called out to California. Let me ponder your words and I will talk when I arrive at the fair. How does that sound?
0: I just don't think the fair is safe. I will see you at the fair, Mr. Weiss. I will not be intimidated. Good day, sir. Geiger hung up. Andy hit the hook and set down the phone. Professor, hello, hello. What happened? asked Lucy. He hung up, and he is coming to the fair. Andy, why would you bring up the general theory of relativity? His thoughts were back at the yellow Ford car and the monkey streaming into the air. I'm trying to gain his confidence. She put her arm around him. We have to trust that Mr. Davenport will get us police protection so the professor
1: will be safe.
0: I Have Seen the Future, Chapter 29 At dusk, Andy and Lucy strolled along the malls, brilliantly lighted reflecting pools. Wavy colors rippled across the Lagoon of Nations to the Court of Peace, where Lucy would read her essay tomorrow. Lofty orange-tinted statues and darkened trees followed them all to the omnipresent perisphere, layered in light like Jupiter's bands. A center white stripe was bordered by a deep blue base, and the upper portion of the dome was highlighted orange, as was the Trilon, and each side of the obelisk was punctuated with four slowly flashing red lights. All evening, Lucy had spoken boldly and precisely about her vision of the future and how people should react to the remarkable changes to come. Andy scrutinized every worker and patron walking by the prodigious fountains, bathed in the colored lights as they erupted into the night. "'Most people don't worry about the future, Andy. "'Most people won't care if we launch a rocket to the moon until we do it.' She held his wrist as he followed two men in the dim light along the fountain. "'It's okay, Andy. I'm sure those agents are gone.' "'I'm listening,' he said, turning as the alternating colored light swept over his shirt. Geiger can get you into college, Lucy.' In the distance, the Trilon and the Perisphere glowed in the night, As if by magic, the statue of Washington and the others along the mall waters changed hues. Andy pointed to the end of Rainbow Ave and the Columnar Schaefer Building, actually blocking the Kodak Building where they were supposed to meet Miss Haverhill and later Davenport himself. We need to be going, he said, extending his hand. Then she hugged him. Andy, if I ever do get to college, will you still see me? I'm not letting you slip away like one of Ned's fish in Harper's Creek. They kissed and she was smiling after they broke. That's good because I'm not letting you slip away either. The full moon rose over the mock Independence Hall building and lagoon water as they started back along Rainbow Ave. Most of the buildings along this stretch were related to the food industry. Seal Chest, Sheffield milk, he said as he mooed like a cow. Moo. Craft. I wonder if they make cheddar cheese. He stopped and fixed a smile. Isn't that what I was supposed to say when I smiled for the camera? Well, Mom certainly has enough pictures. I hope Aunt Charlotte has more film. For the longest time, they skipped arm-in-arm toward the Mammoth Schaefer Center, lighted in Lincoln Square. She peered over his shoulder to the moonlight rippling in the water, and then squeezed his wrist. Why is it I feel as though I want to be a part of it? A part of what? Rocket. Rockets and the moon. Silly. I I feel like I'm literally being pulled in that direction, into the future. Buck Rogers in the 25th century. And I feel like the shadow. He poked at her sides. A shadow nose. She screamed for a second and then turned back to the men behind her. I'm all right. I'm all right. "'Scared, but all right,' Andy laughed. "'I'll get you for that one, Andy Reese,' she said, pointing at him. "'Again, she wrapped her arm around him. "'They followed the columns to the perimeter wall. "'In front of the Brighton Kodak building, "'Miss Haverhill waited in front of John and Mrs. Appel. "'When she saw Andy and Lucy, she hurried across the pavement. "'I was about to send out a rescue party!' "'Just enjoying the fountain and the lights,' said Andy. "'And the moon,' said Lucy.' At that moment, gold and red fireworks spread across the black sky, followed by successive booms that reminded Andy of the blown Transformers. Aren't they beautiful, John? asked Mrs. Appel, pointing to the sky. Boom, 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 said John, looking at Andy. Right, Andy? Right, John. Now, as I just told your parents, Miss Appel, Mr. Davenport is meeting with the mayor tonight, and he apologizes for not being here. "'Tomorrow afternoon I need you to arrive at the tent inside the Court of Peace no later than 3 p.m. "'You will read your essay precisely at 3.30, after which you may relax in the amusement area. "'How does that sound?' "'Well, if Mr. Reese here will jump the parachute ride with me, then that would be great,' said Lucy, "'as one of the fair trains chugged up the road leading to the Trilon and Parisphere. "'Well, I am sure that Mr. Reese can be persuaded.' Then Miss Haverhill faced everyone. Mr. Davenport insisted that I mention our concern about Mr. Reese's agents, and he has assured me that we will have police protection tomorrow. Well, amen, said John. I was about to call our local police chief back in Iowa. And I was about to jump off the try said Andy, as they all laughed. The train swung in a wide arc in front of them. Miss Haverhill extended her hand. Now, I will meet you tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. We will need to be at the far end of the court apiece tomorrow at 3 p.m. in the large tent. Lucy smiled broadly. I will be there. Our driver now will bring you to Bowling Green for your trip back to New Jersey. She shook their hands. Good evening. Good evening, they answered in unison. Andy lifted Lucy on the train and they sat behind the appels. The driver looped the train back to the avenue of the Pioneers. The wind hit his face as Lucy snuggled in his arms. Intense spotlights spited over the US Steel Building in the night sky. Another tractor, number 45, was parked at an angle to the building. Andy did not see the rest of the train. Fireworks above the perisphere popped as they passed the Plaza of Light fountain where he had chased the two agents earlier in the day. Streaking colors spread across the sky, and flashes as loud as rampart booms echoed down the length of the grounds. His elation with the colorful sight was short lived as he imagined the monkeys buzzing within the myriad of lights scattered across the fairground buildings. Fighting the agents was possible, but eliminating the monkeys was a futile adventure. I have seen the future. Chapter 30 Andy lingered at Aunt Charlotte's open bay window and fixated at the darkened two-story Koloski house. The gentle, cooler breeze brushed his face and arms. Earlier, he had kissed Lucy outside her bedroom after he told her how much he cared about her. Before returning to her room, she once again asked why he had spoken to Geiger about Einstein's theory of general relativity. She laughed, when he began his story about keeping Geiger at the college. Then she looked directly into his eyes and confessed that she did not believe him, nor did she believe his story about the building at the rail yard. Goosebumps moved up his arms when she expanded on her idea of plasma inside that insulator. She insinuated he was involved in the plasma as a part of some kind of experiment simulating an organism. Her intelligence astounded him. Then she kissed him and closed the door. Headlights approaching down the road caught his attention. He backed away from the window and peered through the shears as a car swung into the Kowalski driveway. The lights disappeared behind rows of hedges. Andy leaned out the window as the car door closed and he heard someone move up the porch steps. Less than a minute later, a lamp in the first floor window produced a yellow glow over the side lawn. Yet no one was visible inside. Andy's lids hung heavy as he rested his head on his elbows. A revving gasoline engine awoke him, but he was unsure of the time and did not see a car. The Kowalski house was now dark. He thought about heading outside, but soon found himself in and out of sleep under the starry sky outside the window. The sound of faraway cars and the crickets chirping lulled him to sleep. The first sun through the branches warmed his face when he awoke early at the window. He used the downstairs bathroom and returned to the room to dress for the final day at the fair a few minutes later when he had just tied his shoes he again heard the engine that brought him to the window the kowalski car did not have that loud rumble he now heard across the yard he reached for the comb on the dresser and as he pushed it through his hair a tractor from the fair back from the driveway for a second he froze then he dropped the comb and crawled out the bedroom window he landed on the grass As Tractor number 45, the same tractor he had seen at the Plaza of Light last night, now backed onto the street. Two men he had never seen, dressed in blue fair uniforms, sat in the tractor's seat. When the tractor cranked down the quiescent street, Andy sprinted down the sidewalk, but the accelerating tractor turned at the corner some 50 meters ahead and then disappeared across town. Breathing heavily, he slowed in the center of the street. Kowalski, the monkeys, and more people at the fair were now connected. He turned back to the house. He retreated down the sidewalk and snuck up the Kowalski front walk. The black automobile was still parked in the dirt driveway along the hedges. He banged several times on the wood door. Kowalski! Kowalski! Open up! When he did not answer, Andy kicked open the door. The door hit the wallpapered wall and he darted to the right. His fists clenched and he ran through the kitchen. Once in the back hall, he rounded the banister and headed upstairs. Kowalski! No one was in the upper kitchen where the first brother had dissolved to dust. Andy swept through the empty room as he headed back downstairs, and he assumed that Kowalski was on that tractor and heading back to the fair. He grabbed the phone at the base of the stairs. Operator, I need to place a call to Amesbury Union College in New York City. Yes, sir, please hold. Hold. He debated whether to alert Davenport or even McPhail about Kowalski and the other men. He waited for at least five minutes. I have the college, sir. Thank you. Hello, this is Andrew Reese. I'm calling for Professor Geiger. That would be in the physics department. One moment, please, while I connect you. The line rang, and he stared out the window at the car. Maybe Kowalski left something inside. Physics department? answered an older woman. Yes, Professor Geiger, please. I'm sorry, sir. Professor Geiger has been out at our observatory all evening. I'm sure he is asleep at this present time. Well, I'm supposed to meet him at the World's Fair. I'm sure you'll see him there. Andy paused, but never... Sir? Never mind. He closed his eyes and held the phone. Then he pushed down the receiver. He hit it several times and the operator came back. Operator? Yes, I need to place a call to the New York World's Fair. Do you have the number over there? I do not. Please wait. Now the monkeys and maybe the agents were closing in on Geiger. Minutes passed on the dead line and he slid down to the floor. He kept the receiver to his ear. Almost ten minutes since he had placed the call, the line connected without the operator coming back on the line. Good morning. I have seen the future. May I help you? My name is Andy Reese. I'm calling for Mr. Henry Davenport. I will ring Mr. Davenport's number. After three rings, a woman picked up the phone. Administration? Andrew Reese calling for Mr. Davenport. I'm sorry. Mr. Davenport is out on the grounds. How about Miss Haverhill? Miss Haverhill is accompanying Mr. Davenport. Anyone from the police? Is there a problem, sir? Yes, there is a problem. I have a description of the men trying to kill Professor Geiger from Amesbury Union College. Is there any way to track down Mr. Davenport? I can send someone out with a message. Okay, there are two men on Tractor 45. I believe these men are going to do harm to Professor Geiger. She may have been writing down what he said. Are you there? Yes, I will relay your message. We're on our way over to the fair, and we will meet with Mr. Davenport. Again, my name is Mr. Andrew Reese. I understand. Is Lieutenant McPhail there? No, he is not. Please relay the same message to his people. I can do that. Anything else I can help you with? No, not now. This is incredible. I don't understand. Nothing. I'll handle it. I Have Seen the Future Chapter 31, Part 2 The narrator's voice interrupted Geiger again. Now we approach a modern university center. Streamlined buildings in a taller tower not too different from the future appeared in the countryside. Here, in buildings of simple but functional architecture, the youth of 1960 study the future in a world of still greater progress and achievement. Professor, we need to get you out of here right now. You should have stayed in California. You'll be targeted and killed either by the agents or the monkeys. They could have killed me at the fountain." Gaga's face remained placid as he steered below. I have marveled at the progress of this exhibit. Is it a valid depiction of the future? A multi-lane highway system, complete with cloverleafs and long bridge spans, now was visible as they turned. According to history, in 1960 the technological advance was extraordinary. Ah, your great advancement. I have spent my adult life speaking for social technocracy. Are you familiar with this? Yes. Not thinking. Think in English. Think as we progress. And eliminate those points of view that are narrow-minded and not realistic to the world. No, no, no. Points of view must be divergent, Mr. Weiss. That is essential. The virgin points of view all boil down to one happy medium. It is part of the human spirit. His brow creased as he tilted forward. He propped his elbows on his knees and then folded his hands and balanced his chin on his extended index fingers. It would appear that progress finally overcame Wiesin. That is exactly what happened. Like an old friend, the narrator continued... Looming ahead is a 1960 motorway intersection. By means of ramp loops, cars can make right and left turns at the rate of speed up to 50 miles an hour. The turning off lanes are elevated and depressed. Therefore, there is no interference from the straight ahead traffic and the higher speed lanes. And just how do I fit into this? Since you are the one who understands history, I am just a social philosopher. Sir, in less than twenty years, you will have begun a movement that changed attitudes worldwide. Those changed attitudes will alter history. Oh, good God. Me, I may not even be alive in twenty years. The area darkened with a new description. Night falls on the countryside. But what is this ahead? An amusement park in full swing. A merry go round, a Ferris wheel, boys and girls shirking with glee on a pretzel like sky ride. Here's fun merriment in this world of tomorrow. Geiger's index fingers remained pressed against his chin as the ride rotated over rows of buildings near a lake. Smoke billowed upward from the stacks. Just as improved highways have benefited the farmer, so they have added to the comforts of living and the economic welfare of those in industrial communities. Here is a prosperous and thriving steel town. I have an ever-present notion that he moved his clenched fist outward, that mankind is a fabric of being with characteristics that will not change with progress. He slowly lowered his fist and his lanky fingers relaxed outward. Have you all to be herded into steel towns like they say? Lighter manufacturing and then voluntarily into suburbia. Like the town of tomorrow, yes, that makes sense, yes. But then all crammed into towers called silos. Oh, that is not progress. Then the seraph, the monkeys, destroyed the silos and then humanity. Geiger held his wrist. If I bring your story to its logical conclusion, it would seem that the only thing left was your monkeys. Andy lowered his head. No, no humans, no humans. The planned community merged into highways throughout the rough terrain peaks. Now we are traveling high above the mountains and valleys below, a bird's eye of a paradise for vacationers. With the Fast Highways of 1960, the slogan, See America First, has taken on new meaning and importance. Geiger moved his index fingers away from his chin. I would ask them a simple question. How do I fight these monkeys? How are they stopped? Water, said Andy, admitting a nervous laugh. Ha, huh, of course. That is why I survived in the fountain. The narrator described more highways through rural mountain routes. More highways crossed a wonderfully constructed dam and symmetrical countryside. Maybe if they believed that you were dead. feigned Death? Interesting, said Geiger as he peered over the approaching city below, constructed with louvered skyscrapers on the edge of a wide river with a huge suspension bridge. As the narrator spoke, a city with green parks, fresh air, sunshine, and a well-designed plan appeared below. This city is over-optimistic. Although optimistic declarations are essential for progress, young man. Human hope is fueled with deception, but the belief in the future must be tempered with thoughtful reaction to the changes. Oh, I hear what you're saying. The Futurama isn't a perfect prediction. We must really think about what we are doing. Miss Appel knows. Below was a sunken highway through slick city buildings and the GM logo blazing on one of the buildings to the left. The heavy 1930s cars were out of place compared to the real future smaller vehicles in his capsule. And now, each of the four buildings on this street intersection of the future.
1: Interesting and exciting
0: displays and exhibits. We are nearing the end, said Garger. Listen, I will meet you again this afternoon at the Court of Peace where Miss Sipel reads her essay. Perhaps I will give thought to temporarily staging my own death. Maybe your monkeys will leave us alone. Andy extended his hand. You are a very perceptive man, Professor. Perhaps too perceptive, my friend. Geiger stood as the chair moved toward the intersection light, and he mouthed the narrator's voice. All eyes to the future. Professor, you shouldn't stay here, said Andy. Get as far away from the fair as you can, and let people think that you're dead. That's the only way. I understand, said Geiger. Why were you chosen to be brought back in time, Mr. Vese? I have a more poignant question. Please. Why do you believe me? asked Andy. Geiger lifted his head and laughed. If if I hadn't seen the bugs, and I hadn't been chased, and if I had not seen the tunnel in space, I would never even have talked to you at all. I was scanning the sky and had sent out a signal for exoplanetary life. The Enclave caught my signal through time and were simply able to communicate with me. They told me about you. Geiger's eyes watered. Me? And the movement that kept a watchful eye on technology. They wanted me to prevent your death, which is what I'm trying to do. Then the bugs were supposed to kill me. Not necessarily. There are two agents, possibly German, after you. As I told you on the phone, that is something I live with ever since I left Germany. But those bugs trying to kill me is another thing. Nobody knows about the monkeys except you and me. Well, I certainly understand that. The ride began to slow. Listen, I owe it to Lucia Pell to be at her meeting. Geiger stood before the ride stopped. She does not need you there. Please, I implore you. Police officers from Mayor LaGuardia will be arriving shortly. They take the agent's threat very seriously. Geiger gripped his umbrella and pontificated as he marched along the alcoves. Here it is I am flabbergasted by what you have told me, but please allow me the time to make sense of what you have said. Just leave the grounds, Professor. Please, you are in danger. With a rolling gait, Geiger paralleled Andy to the top of the ramp. As they merged into the crowd on the ramp, he was sure Geiger had merely humored him. As Geiger shook Andy's hand, the two agents, now wearing blue fair uniforms, started toward the ramp. The agents! There! asked Geiger, twisting his arm. Andy yanked his arm, and they jaunted toward the adjacent Ford building a few hundred meters away. He quickly steered Geiger across the grass, and they hid behind the shrubbery, separating the General Motors and Ford buildings. An occasional raindrop hit her face. "'The Corona Gate is just beyond the Chrysler Building,' said Geiger in a hyperventilated speech. "'But I dare say they are coming right here, Heavis. "'You're right.' The two men raced toward the thick foliage. He shoved the professor forward onto a grassy stretch near numerous lollipop trees lining another avenue. A split white building ahead was set back on the grass." Red Chrysler Motors letters lined the upper facade, and a flag draped on a tower to the right. Just as Andy brought Geiger back on the pavement, the agents ran down the adjacent avenue. Nix that gate, professor, said Andy, spinning. Ahead was a huge concrete-molded aviation hangar within a larger half-shell to the rear. He thought about hiding inside. Indy placed his hand on Geiger's back and motioned him toward the bridge of wings across the highway. They had only taken a few steps when two quick shots pinged on the bridge. Hurry, professor! The hawk agent advanced over the bridge. More shots reverberated against the concrete facade. You have connections in the Soviet pavilion, correct? No time! No time! said Geiger, breathing heavily. Big Joe is way up the other end. Perhaps... If we find another one of the tractor trains. Brilliant sunlight pierced the gray storm clouds and enveloped the Washington statue in an eerie white light. Andy helped the professor toward a tractor train that was parked below the statue. Maybe we just need to leave the fair. Geiger climbed in the rear car and patted his forehead with a handkerchief. The driver started the tractor and drove along the other lofty statues from the silhouetted perisphere and trilon. Andy looked back. Both agents were running at full clip under the perisphere. The rain drummed hotter on the orange-striped canopy, and the towering Washington statue reflected the alternating brilliant white flashes followed by distant encroaching thunder. The droplets bounced and spattered on the maroon pavement as the tractor engine whined. Geiger turned toward the Perisphere and Trilon, now heightened in alabaster below the dark clouds. We have to make it to the Court of Peace and then the Soviet Pavilion. Andy nodded as the rainwater now drained over the canopy's edge. Look, these, if I don't make it, you'll make it, Professor, you'll make it. No, I have grave doubts. Even if we escape these men, they will persist until they kill me. If I am truly so important to history, I don't see how one man can change so much. But you, you know the future. You have to be the one to effect the change. Me, if I die, you must effect a movement to keep technology in check. I hear you, Professor, but I'm going to get you to the Soviet pavilion out by Big Joe. The Verka statue, paid for by Stalin. Steam filtered up from the painted avenue as the skies again flashed and thunder cracked over the fairgrounds. The train sprayed water outward from the puddles along the pavilions. As they sped past the mall's gray reflecting pool, Andy stuck his head out the swaying train and checked ahead for the Soviet pavilion. A slight wind had cooled the air and more rain threatened. The mall was dotted with huge statues and row after row of slotted park benches. Along the opposite side of the reflecting pool, the little yellow Crosley car moved at high speed. One of the agents aimed a handgun out the window. Andy quickly shoved Geiger to the floor as several bullets tore into the train's canopy. Dear God, they will kill us all! They'll rendezvous with this train at Rainbow Avenue, shouted Andy. We need to get off before then. Hey! called to the van driver. Andy gripped the seat. The Crosley still trailed the train across the water as patrons on the far benches scattered. The Crosley and the train were about to converge at the magnificent fountain ahead. This time the train slowed for people crossing Rainbow Avenue, but the Crosley closed in from the opposite side. Out, Professor! Andy leaped from the car and steadied Geiger. Then they stumbled forward but managed to remain upright. Which way to Big Joe? Found the fountain to the right. Geiger was winded and his color was pale as he held onto the fountain wall. We have to keep going, professor. Another shot chipped the concrete. The Crosley parked around the fountain and then one of the men set out on foot. They are going to kill us all. Andy dragged him below the retaining wall. Stay down, but keep moving around the fountain toward that Soviet pavilion. What are you going to do? I'm going back, and I'm going to get them. I cannot let you give up your life for me. Do as I say, Professor. Move. Move or you'll be a dead man. Andy peered over the wall. The other men had returned to the Crosley. He rolled over the wall and splashed into the pool. He was only under for a second before he emerged back in the cooler air. The car was now moving slowly around the fountain rim. Andy squatted down as the car approached. As they passed, he vaulted the wall and leaped onto the car. He scrambled to the front seat and grabbed the guy in the driver's seat by the coat. Then he pummeled the agent's neck and skull. The car drove uncontrollably in a circle as as shots were fired into the air. People dived to the pavement. Andy knocked the second guy's gun out of the Crosley. Then he kicked the driver hard enough to cause him to keel over, and the car simply rolled to a stop. He felt a stinging blow to the back of his head. When he spun around this time, he chopped at the other man's throat. The man fell back lifeless in the seat. But the driver had a shiny silver gun and a sickening smile on his face. He aimed the gun at Andy's head. He who laughs, last, Reese, laughs best. From the other side of the convertible's door, Geiger appeared and smashed his umbrella against the man's wrist. Andy sprung upward and hit the agent hard enough to render him unconscious. And you thought the old guy didn't have it in him, said Geiger. I'm very grateful that the old guy is always thinking. Knock Dankin. he yeah, he's knock Dankin. I Have Seen the Future Chapter 32 Andy stood under the gargantuan cord of pieces linear wing adjacent to the middle section's six center columns. He faced a pensive Geiger and two members of the Fair Police. Are you sure you're all right, Professor? Geiger rotated like a mannequin. I should be asking you that, Herr Well, I'm certainly relieved that those men are in custody, and you can call me Andy. They will not be going back to Hitler and his gang, that is for sure, Andy. No, they won't. A tractor engine grew louder from beyond the lagoon fountain. I think the train is finally coming. The orange and blue train tractor towed the canopied cars as the fountain's lofty jets peaked in midair and rained water back to earth. Lucy waved from behind the driver. The train slowed and the driver cut the gasoline engine. Behind the train, the fountain and towering white statues were highlighted in the sunshine. McPhail, in his blue police uniform, grabbed the edges of his belt and pulled his pants higher on his bulging stomach. Andy shook his head in the mist. What are you looking at, Reese? A little late, aren't you, Lieutenant? McPhail, still holding his belt, moved closer. He glanced at his own men and then turned to Andy. Reese, you are in the right place at the right time. Or oh, the wrong place at the wrong time, said Geiger, chuckling. Like a turtle's head retreating into his shell, McPhail's face retracted into his double chin. He coughed twice and gazed at his men. His blustery voice echoed off the building walls. Okay, you men, off to the tent. Andy smiled at Geiger. Upon exiting the train, Lucy was sandwiched between her parents to the rear and Miss Haverhill to the front. McPhail and his two men entered the large white tent to the right. Lucy ran ahead of Miss Haverhill and hugged Andy. Thank God you're all right, Andy. She kissed him and Geiger raised his brows. Mr. Davenport, phone Miss Haverhill. Lucy, this is Herman Geiger. Professor, what an honor it is to meet you. I hope we have time to speak. Perhaps after your speech. I have looked forward for months to meeting you, Lucy. And to hear your speech, too. I feel that you are a talented young woman. Thank you. I am, of course, grateful to Mr. Wies for his quick and brave response to the agents of Adolf Hitler. That's why I signed Andy up to travel to the fair, said John, as he and Mrs. Appel stepped forward. For Lucy's protection, and I'm happy that he saved you from those Germans. Right, Andy? Andy smiled broadly. Right, John. This is my father and mother, Professor, said Lucy. A pleasure to meet you. Miss Haverhill gingerly lifted her thin gold wristwatch upward. Lucy, you have a speech to give. Lucy locked her arm around Andy's arm. Are you ready for the debut of the girl from Iowa? A.K.A. Kimo a wood-grained platform with a circular blue logo of the fair and the white trilon and perisphere was located in the center of a flower-packed stage. Several hundred people had packed audience chairs as an animated Davenport gestured to several men in dark pinstripe suits. McPhail and his subordinates, like tourists in the big city, wandered down the side rows. The swaggering lieutenant still gripped his belt and struck up conversations with numerous females along the way. Davenport, his back arch, descended the stairs and extended his hand to Andy. I wish to commend you personally for your actions today, Mr. Reese. Well done, well done. Thank you. And I know I asked you on the telephone, Professor, but are you feeling up to snuff? I assure you that I am fine, Mr. Davenport. Excellent, excellent. And I am told that the mayor's office is preparing a proclamation in your honor, Andy. The mayor will not be dilatory and will arrive momentarily. Excuse me, Henry. I need Lucy on the platform, said Miss Haverhill. Lucy hugged her parents and then turned to Andy. She raised her arms outward and produced a wide smile. Here I go. You'll do fine. He held her shoulders and kissed her. I'll be right here. Miss Haverhill escorted Lucy up the red carpeted stairs as Davenport ushered Geiger, John, and Mrs. Appel into the front row. Andy positioned himself on the outside wooden chair. On the platform, Lucy was introduced to various dignitaries along several rows of chairs. A bulky brown television camera was positioned in front of the woodgrain podium. Andy sat back next to John as more people trickled into the tent and filled the rows. Mayor LaGuardia swept onto the platform from the left and was immediately surrounded by a wave of dignitaries that moved toward Davenport. Reporters, writing furiously on their paper pads, as well as gathered guests, formed a circle around Davenport and Lucy on the platform. Davenport motioned Lucy to her seat, then he sauntered toward the podium. In a self-assured voice, he alluded to Lucy's essay and squinted into the large RCA camera. The enormity of Geiger's role in changing history again descended upon Andy as he leaned back. It is my great pleasure to announce his honor, Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia. Andy stood and clapped his hands with the deafening applause from the entire audience. LaGuardia, his head and shoulders, rose just over the microphone and both sides of the podium. Then he raised his arms to quell the enthusiasm. Thank you, Henry, thank you. You know, ladies and gentlemen, President Grover Whalen set in motion eight months ago a contest to be offered to young people. He wanted our young people across the nation to put into writing their feelings about the theme of our fair here in New York in 1939. Mr. Davenport could verify the thousands of essays and stories about the fair, but President Whalen was particularly struck by the poignant and relevant essay from a young woman from Hancock, Iowa. That young woman and her family have traveled across America by automobile to view and enjoy all aspects of the fair. I had the great pleasure yesterday to talk with this fine young woman, and I must say, ladies and gentlemen, I am impressed. Well, enough from your mayor. At this time, I would like you to listen closely to the words of this unique and gifted young lady. He turned toward Lucy new york welcomes miss lucy appell andy applauded with the rest of the crowd he had an overwhelming sense of relief that he had changed history by stopping those two agents lucy walked across the platform and shook hands again with the mayor davenport handed her a leather-bound book that probably contained her speech lucy smiled and panned the crowd she gazed into the camera with ease and gripped the book her words were quickly delivered, echoed over the tense speakers, yet she seemed very sure of herself. My name is Lucia Pell, and I have lived 18 years on this planet. Many of you have been here a little longer, some a lot longer. Crowd laughed, just as the people at the Hancock graduation. I have been most fortunate to win a writing contest offered by the President's Committee of the New York World's Fair. I think what this committee and the fair itself is trying to accomplish is to bring this country forward from the depths of depression mayor laguardia is correct about the marvellous things that we have seen here in new york at the world's fair. President Wayland and others have shown us the future by the construction here of 1,216 acres of a former Corona ash dump, a marvelous exhibition that looks to the world of tomorrow. I have seen news of the fair. President Roosevelt realized the importance of the fair by traveling to New York and officially opening the fair to the nation and the world behind the tent here in the Court of Peace. He said, and I quote, the eyes of the United States are fixed on the future. The world of tomorrow beckons for us all. New inventions will dazzle us, and the convenience of innovation will provide us with outstanding leisure hours, easing the drudgery of the past. I have seen many of those conveniences and advances, as I have been fortunate to travel around the fair but with that convenience and added time will come the greatest challenge of all." Her tone maintained the same self-assured cadence Andy had first heard in Iowa, but it was her presence on the television set that was striking. Herman Geiger. Her eyes swept across the assemblage. Herman Geiger asked us to use prudence within the new social technocracy. Professor Geiger believes Unlike the past, where boundaries were duly set for us all, the future will require us to be, and I quote, the guardians of practicality and morality. What does this mean? Don't we all make our own moral and practical decisions now? Well, yes, we do. Let me give you an example. She looked at Mrs. Appel and John in the front row. When my mother and father were born, There was no radio, no Jack Benny program or Burns and Allen, and especially no Martians landing in New Jersey. Thank you, Mr. Orson Welles. A wave of laughter again rolled across the tent. I believed for a few minutes last October that Martians were landing in New Jersey because I wanted to believe what a powerful provider radio is. We have to decide what we believe, just as we used to judge a man's word. But I guess drama is more alluring. In the world of tomorrow, it will become increasingly difficult to challenge what is handed to us, not only on the radio, but in an increased ability to travel from place to place on the superhighways I saw in the Futurama this morning. As some of us leave the roots of our small towns and, yes, Our cities like New York City but what do we do with all that extra time will we become like self-indulgent spoiled rich kids and never have enough and expect things will be given to us these are serious questions and like Professor Geiger has said we had better think about them or be sucked into the future without questioning the ramifications of our great technology And that's all we have to do, just think. We don't need new rules and new regulations. We just need to think. How wonderful it is to live in our time. Surviving hard times not only allows us to see where we have been, but we can imagine the hope of tomorrow. We are alive at the cusp of great innovations and inventions destined to ease the burdens of mankind. In New York City, men have provided us a glimpse into the future. Did you know that great concrete highways will extend from Atlantic to Pacific? Thirty years from now, you will step inside your streamlined car in Boston and drive at high speeds along the roadways to Los Angeles, California. You need not stop at traffic lights or wait for pedestrians to cross the street. You can see this at the General Motors Futurama here at the New York World's Fair. Our lives will be streamlined. And at night, we'll no longer listen to radio. Strange as it seems, something called television, which I am on right now, will show us movies on a small screen in our living rooms. Such a demonstration is already in place at the RCA exhibit at the fair. I will sit with my husband and children and be brought to faraway places. Maybe we'll live in a place called Democracy. City. I always remember what my father has told me since I was a little girl. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably isn't. My father can be cynical and I am wide-eyed. I say, let us dream about the future and explore the innovations at the fair, but let us always use what my mother calls common sense. In closing, let me use one more quote. The German philosopher Hermann Geiger captured the essence of what is to come when he said, ten years before he fled, Nazism's unfulfilled promises, my eyes marvel at the future, but my feet are firmly planted in the past. Lucia Pell, April 19, 1939, Hancock, Iowa. Everyone in the tent stood as the applause grew louder. Andy cheered as Davenport, Wayland, and the mayor converged around Lucy. LaGuardia hugged her and said something to her. That speech was remarkable, said Geiger, as he and Andy moved into the outer aisle. That's our Lucy, said John. Right, John, said Andy. I didn't say right, Andy. Well, I beat you to the punch. Well, that's the understatement of the year. Lucy and Davenport were still on stage speaking with dignitaries but he did not see LaGuardia as he led Geiger up the stairs. In the back of the audience, next to the white tent fabric, McPhail kibitzed with two slender blonde guides. Andy followed Geiger across the carpeted platform. Lucy turned as Geiger removed his sunglasses. Wonderful job, Lucy, said Andy as he embraced her. Geiger adjusted his glasses. Let me say, Lucy, you have captured the essence of responsible use of technology. Thank you so much, Professor. I would like to invite you to Amesbury Union College before you return to Iowa. Thank you. I would like that. And how do you find the idea of progress here at the fair, Professor? Such an optimistic attitude, Lucy. That is good. But nowhere do I hear any of challenging progress here at the fair. Andy stepped back as Davenport approached Geiger. Professor, we're bringing Miss Appel and her family to the amusement area. Would you like to attend? I wouldn't miss it, said Geiger. I feel as if I have a new lease on life. Davenport held his wrist briefly. Perhaps you do. Lucy, what did the mayor say to you? She smiled broadly and held his hands. He said he might be able to help me with college. That's great news. All you need is that one break. She nodded as they trailed after Geiger, her parents, and Miss Haverhill. Outside, MacPhail smoked a cigarette and walked casually with two policemen. Ah, Lieutenant McPhail, said Davenport, his nose twitching with the smoke. If you would kindly station your men aboard the train with Miss Appel. Yes, sir, we have the uh we have the situation well in hand, said MacPhail. He ordered the two men to the rear of the train and tossed the cigarette onto the pavement as he sat up with the driver. Andy, come up with us, said Lucy. Andy nodded and climbed aboard. Miss Haverhill sat behind McPhail as Davenport nodded to Geiger. With a wide smile, she faced them all. Off to the amusement area! Parachutes, said Lucy as she held Andy's arm. Andy closed his eyes. How high is it? 225 feet. "'Are you sure you just don't want to head back to Iowa?' asked Andy. He put his hand on John's shoulder. "'What about you, John? Are you jumping the parachute?' "'I think I'll stick with the frozen-alive girl.' "'Professor, I despise heights.' She kissed his cheek. "'You're elected, Kimo-subby.' The tractor lurched forward, and the engine cranked as they looped in front of the Court of Peace. The sun broke through the clouds again, painting a surreal setting of buildings across the water— but thunder rumbled in the distance. Geiger hit Andy's wrist and pointed at the towering statue of Big Joe in the orange light across the water. Andy leaned back and cupped his hand around Lucy's ear. Her eyes opened wide. I'll second that remark. I love you, too. I have seen the future. Chapter 33. A behemoth replica of a cash register rotated atop the National Cash Register building as they approached the amusement area. Miss Haverhill accompanied them to a bleacher area in front of a wide stretch of water spread blue under the sky. As a synchronized group of female swimmers combined with coordinated maneuvers in the pool, Geiger spoke directly to Andy. I, of course, have not mentioned our Futurama conversation to anyone. It would seem that your enclaves prediction of my demise was accurate. I had my doubts, professor. Being able to have that knowledge to project back in time didn't seem possible, but the agents are gone and you're alive. The crowd clapped at the swimmers, moving in unison in the water. You have a wealth of knowledge, my friend. I want to first take you to my colleagues at Mount Wilson. Together, we can change the world. I never thought of that. My only thought was, He said as thunder banged in the distant clouds was saving your life well i am very glad you were successful as the water show ended with a wide circular spectacular in the center everyone stood and lucy had to pull andy to his feet she looked down the aisle wisdom's haverhill i wonder if we'll be able to go on that parachute ride with all that thunder that storm it appears may have gone out to sea said geiger Lucy scooted by them and passed McPhail and his men down the steps. For a few seconds, she talked to Miss Haverhill. Then she raised her hands upward. I would say we're going for a little ride, Andy told Geiger. Andy winced at the red letters across the cement fascia on the ride's base and pretended to be sick to his stomach. Parachute jump. Geiger laughed as Lucy pulled him over to Miss Haverhill, waiting at the chairlift. Nice knowing you, heavies. "'I think you want me alive, Professor.' Above them, a white chute rose to the top of the ride and hit one of the twelve girders. The chute then puffed outward and descended with several fair patrons toward the ground. Lucy and Andy were seated in the metal chair. An attendant with a long cigarette hanging out of the corner of his mouth lowered a bar over their thighs. "'How high is this?' asked Andy. Twenty-five stories, Mac.' Immediately, they started skyward. The Perisphere and the Trilon were like a distant white mirage in the gray light as they ascended above the fair. Lightning illuminated the deep gray clouds toward the ocean and more thunder followed. The bright cars still raced around the garage ramps at the Ford building to the left. Lucy gripped his arm tightly as they moved higher. "'I didn't think it was this high!' she exclaimed, "Nix the knack-dankin. "'Look at this place, Andy!' she pointed to her right. But "'There's the tent where I just spoke!' Now George Washington looks like an ant. Look at that bumbler, McPhail. Where? Andy pointed at the Midway area where McPhail stood with two women in sundresses. The other two policemen were nowhere to be seen. New York City's finest, I've got a good mind to call the mayor myself. Across the dark, billowing clouds, back toward the New York City skyscrapers and the Empire State Building, an intense, luminescent lightning powerhouse shot back toward the fair. The impact against the radio tower near the plaza of light was instantaneous, and the crack was like a bomb reverberating throughout his chest. The tower broke at the center as it tumbled over and the ride stopped 50 meters above the fairgrounds. The tower hit the ground, spreading dust and debris upward. The beams split apart into prodigious spews of sparkling light. Monkeys. What? Why did you say monkeys? She asked, still nestled in his shoulder. The beam slowly moved toward the ground and the smaller globs of monkeys leaked across the pavement and sputted in the fountain of light. Then the beam ever so gradually lost its power and disappeared into the ground. A few sparks flew across the plaza and then it was over. Gone. It must have drawn them out in the light. All the monkeys. She sat up and seemed no longer afraid of being so high above the fair. Just like Duane Piltz. Andy nodded. Like Duane Piltz. But it emptied out. How? What were they, Andy? Andy shook his head and looked downward. He tightened his brow as Geiger backed toward the lake. Several men in fair uniforms formed a semicircle around Geiger, and another man in a brown suit resembling him walked ahead of the men. Oh no! He shouted with his hand cupped around his mouth. McPhail! McPhail! McPhail was arm in arm with the blondes on the midway. That stupid fool. Power clicked on and the chair started up again. Seconds later, the chute knocked against the girder as the white fabrics spread open in the descending air. Stay right here. Geiger was trapped in the corner and the men in the brown suit closed in, toward the men about 50 meters away by the lake. Kowalski! The remaining Kowalski brother faced Andy. His eyes were lit as bright as night. Andy smashed his fist into the fare workers producing gaping orange cavities just like Dwayne Pilts as the first two men collapsed into granules. He tackled both guys, but as he pummeled him, the monkeys escaped and vanished into the air. As he got on his feet, the last worker had his arms around Geiger from behind. Kowalski produced a shiny chrome handgun and fired three times into Geiger's stomach. The professor fell forward, but the worker behind him vanished to dust. Andy rushed Kowalski and set his legs directly at Kowalski's chest, but Kowalski fired. A sharp pain ripped through his neck as he raised his hands to the wound. More shots echoed along the lake. Kowalski's body flashed and vanished. The gun fell to the asphalt. Andy heard Lucy's voice and sensed her hands as blood saturated his shirt. Oh, God, Andy! Andy! Don't die, Andy. Don't die. Please don't die. Andy tried to smile as the blood spilled over the corner of his mouth. You're the one, Lucy. You're the one, not Geiger. You carry on. Make the difference. Make the difference. Sail into the western skies. Andy will get you to a hospital. Hold on. Hold on. Andy tasted the blood salty in his throat and he coughed. Never give up. Always go on. Know that you're right. Have faith in the right things. Knock Dinkin', knock Dinkin', knock Dinkin'. Cape Kennedy, Florida, United States of America. June 20th, 1969. The limo radio blasted out the actual transmission from Apollo 11. I have the tickets, said William as he got behind the wheel of the limo. He handed the green and white tickets to Lucy. 30th anniversary. I never thought I'd see Man on the Moon, but then again, I never thought I'd see The Wizard of Oz either. You really haven't seen it? No, I haven't, but I think today is a special day. I'll see Man on the Moon... And see the Wizard of Oz. Aunt Lucy is probably the only person in America not to see the Wizard of Oz. I have my reasons, Andrew. Lucy checked her newly trimmed shorter and mostly gray hair in the limo mirror. She smiled at Andrew and listened to the spacecraft transmission as the limo moved onto the Manhattan Street. Then she flipped back the flight plan and shook her head. Why are you shaking your head, Aunt Lucy? She smiled at Andrew. His curiosity at that age reminded her of herself. I was checking the flight plan for bringing the Eagle down to the lunar surface. And? Armstrong and Aldrin will separate the limb shortly. I was a strong proponent of pilots flying aircraft and not relying totally on computers. I just don't trust those monkey computers, and in the end, mankind is the captain of his destiny. Is that why you resigned after the Apollo fire? asked Andrew. Yes. No one took the time to think, to think about the ramifications of pure oxygen in the cabin. Even me. And then three men were dead. She pressed her lips and remembered how she, Harley and his wife, and Andrew had been in the VIP section at Launch Pad 39A when the Saturn V roared into space four days ago from the Launch Pad. Ever since, as a little girl, she marveled at the harvest moon in the Iowa sky. She knew this day would come. The dark-haired driver looked at her in the mirror. I'll get you to the studio's VIP entrance. Senators and congressmen are VIPs. I am just a person who thinks, that's all. Andrew sat off camera as the studio technician adjusted the overhead microphone. The monitor off to the side was bringing in a live feed from Luna Orbit, and she held half a headphone to her ear. Lucy faced the blonde-haired WCBX reporter. "'Say, Bruce, they're passing landmarks on the moon's surface at a very fast rate.' "'What do you think that means, Dr. Appel?' asked the reporter. "'Is there something we need to go on the air with?' "'Oh, God, no,' she said, listening. "'They're 1,800 meters above the surface, and I'm hearing 1202 and 1201 program alarms.' "'Well, is everything all right up there?' "'It's the guidance computer. It's not working right. "'Oh, God, he's in an area laced with boulders.' "'Well, if that limb is going to crash, we need to be on the air.' Wait, wait. Neil is taking control. Hold on, hold on. Are you telling me that Armstrong is manually flying that craft? Well, Buzz Aldrin is relaying to him the actual altitude over the moon and the vehicle speed. Well, we need to report this. I would not go on the air with this right now. Why not? She removed the headphone for a second. They're low on fuel, Bruce. Plus, Cronkite is covering it nationally. No need to get everyone all revved up. You ever listen to War of the Worlds? Well, I see your point. You have me here for perspective. She raised the headphone again and smiled. Armstrong is piloting that limb. He is, my God! I don't hear that on the national feed. She listened to the transmission directly from the limb. Here we go, I think he's leaning. Picking up some dust. 30 feet, Two and a half down. Take that out. Fall forward. Forward, drift into the right a little. Down a half. Contact right, Okay, engine stop. Listen, uh, tranquility base here. The eagle has landed. Roger, tranquility. We copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. Lucy raised her arms and stood. Andrew leaped from his seat and hugged her. We did it. We did it. My God, Andy, we did it. Andrew tilted his head. You were telling Andy. She wiped the tears away from her cheeks. Yes, I was. The studio lights intensified. We are one minute from airtime and we will need your reaction, Dr. Appel. I'm ready. After all, you were one of the first advocates of men in space. I would hardly put myself in the timeline of Sielkowski, Dornberger, and Goddard. I am one of the first ones since A.T. A.T.? Everyone tends to think that nothing existed before TV, said Lucy, producing a huge media smile. He returned the smile and laughed. Well, we're counting down, Bruce. Ten seconds. Bruce licked his lips and Lucy sat up straight. Two, one, go, Bruce. Good afternoon. This is Bruce Formby. We are interrupting our regularly scheduled program to bring you news from the moon. Yes, the moon. American astronauts Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin have landed on the moon. You are hearing me correctly. We have landed human beings on the moon. I have with me Dr. Lucy Appel. Dr. Appel was instrumental in rocket development for the United States space program. It's great news, isn't it, Bruce? Honestly, I can't believe it, Dr. Appel. You have to go back to the early days of the space program, and we've come a long way to the moon. Well, the Al Shepard flight back in 61 had a margin of success, and Shepard knew it, as do Armstrong, Aldrin, and Collins. Redstone rockets were blowing up at the Cape all the time. Yet we went forward. It's the human spirit to do so. Without brave men like Al Shepard, as well as Grissom, White, and Chafee, we wouldn't be up there right now. Well, Shepard didn't actually fly that capsule. While he didn't like that, none of the original seven astronauts were supposed to. When I hear reports that Neil Armstrong piloted the lunar excursion vehicle to the surface, I got goosebumps. I'm ecstatic. It shows that mankind should have precedence over machines and computers. I have always abdicated that. Well, you wrote the book, Why Do We Go to the Moon? Well, I did after hearing that inspirational speech by Jack Kennedy at Rice University. But it was working with Dr. Goddard in New Mexico in the 40s that set the course for the effort we see here today. Dr. Goddard did not live to see this day, but he knew it would happen. And you went right to NASA after that. Well, that was a lot later. I was involved in Operation Paperclip when Dr. Werner von Braun-Dorenberger and the others were brought over here after the war. NASA came after the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, said Lucy. Did we have any moon prototypes back then? Oh, no, no. We worked on a four-digit wing section in the 1940s, and now here we are about to step on the moon after the astronauts rest for a while. Well, the word I have is the astronauts have chosen to remain awake. All adrenaline. It's all adrenaline. Of course, of course. So if you can be with us in a few hours, we will witness Armstrong actually stepping out on the moon. This is Bruce Formby. We now return you to our regularly scheduled programs. Lucy hurried by Andrew and whispered in his ear. Again, she had goosebumps on her arm. I wish Andy could have seen this. I really do. Andrew nodded. I understand. We have back in the studio Dr. Lucy Appel, a former NASA advisor and technology advocate. Did you ever think this day would come, Dr. Appel? Well, when I was a little girl in Iowa, I'd go out into the field at night and I would see the moon coming up over the trees, and I just knew it would happen. I just knew it would happen. Okay, Neil, we can see you coming down the ladder now I'm, uh, at the foot of the ladder. the only uh, Lucy pressed her lips uh, and fought the goosebumps in and the tears. About, uh, one or two inches. Step off the land now. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Doctor Appel, will we ever see anything like this? Oh, what a great day for the human race! I have to tell you that throughout this all remarkable day, I have been speechless. Understandable, with all the intense emotions surrounding the monumental event of mankind walking on another planetary body. I think as we attempt to put what Neil Armstrong just did into perspective, we need to remember what the mantra was at the 1939 World Fair when I placed a little button on my dress that said, I have seen the future. We are, we are in the future now, indeed. I have a photograph here of a 19-year-old Lucy Appel. Oh dear, was I behaving myself? Well, I hope so. You're standing with Dr. Robert Goddard at the Goddard shop in Roswell, New Mexico in 1940. I'm holding this up so the cameraman can get a shot of it. Yes, the rocket pictured had turbopumps that injected propellants into the combustion chamber. It was on its assembly frame open without the casing. Dr. Goddard was instrumental into what we are witnessing today. Oh, that's logical. Good grief, Bruce. You make me sound like the female Mr. Spock. Well, I have a second photo dated November 16, 1963, of President Kennedy, Werner von Braun, and you at Cape Canaveral. Lucy smiled at Andrew. We were with Robert Siemens before the actual launch of the Saturn I rocket. Of course, it was always my contention that the moon has been up there for millions of years. To race there in 10 to 15 years left the door open for mistakes. When you think, you understand. But nevertheless, this is certainly a great day. Our last photograph here is at the World's Fair in 1939 with your family. Lucy's eyes moistened when she saw Andy next to her at the Kodak building's display at the World's Fair. Yes, I remember. He checked his notes. I have written here that you said you would call your brother when man walked on the moon. Yes, I promised my brother Ned when we were children that I would call him when man walked on the moon, but he never thought it would happen. So when we do get done here, I will place that call to Nettie. You should have placed a little side bet on that, he said with a chuckle. Bruce, I'm watching the fuzzy image of a human being walking on the moon. But my mind is far ahead into the future once again. The computers that have brought our brave astronauts to the moon will evolve, as will all our technology. But it was a human being who actually brought that limb to the surface. The theme of the fair in 1939 was the future. This is true. But the fair did not do what it was supposed to do, something I call Nachdenken. Well, what does that mean? Nachdenken, think, reflect, were the words of the late German scientist Hermann Geiger. It was the warning imparted to me by my dearest friend who was killed along with Dr. Geiger at the fair. Nockdenken brings to humanity the conscience of advancement. But we must not stop the advancement either. I think Dr. Geiger's philosophy, in the strictest sense, stifles progress. Yet we must reflect on the progress as Dr. Geiger said. It becomes a never-ending question of the ramifications of the expansion of human knowledge. And without being called to task about what mankind creates, then the creation will be his undoing. And I think of a certain someone, my friend, I think of him at this momentous cusp in time, she said, choking on her words. But she continued. Let us remember that wonderful passage from Romeo and Juliet. Come, gentle knight. Come, loving black-browed knight. Give me my Romeo, and when he shall die, take him and cut him out in little stars. And he will make the face of heaven so fine." that all the world will be in love with night and pay no worship to the garish sun.